Good morning, church family. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. If we haven't met before, my name is Emily, and I'm so grateful that we get to gather this morning around Jesus to worship together. Today, we're starting a new sermon series in 2nd and 3rd John. So a bit later on in the service, Peter is going to be opening up 3rd John to us. So we're looking forward to that. Well, it's time now for our Bible reading. So if you have a Bible near you, grab it and open up to 3rd John. This is a short letter all the way in the end of the New Testament. So we're going to read all of that today. 3rd John. So this is what John writes. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who wants to, who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we'll talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, please do keep your finger right there in Third John. Well, last month, The Telegraph posted an article that I found interesting called, Do You Have Lockdown Face? My question to you, do you have lockdown face? Bethany King writes that with less air pollution, with more time at home, freer schedules, and with boots claiming that 80, 82% of makeup wearers are not wearing makeup, all of our faces should be absolutely glowing. But for many of us, quarantine has brought with, with it some unwelcome changes to our skin and maybe even to the look of our faces. So here are five potential signs that you might have lockdown face. Number one, you may have found a sudden stress breakout or some acne appearing on your face again. You, secondly, you might have under eye bags. I definitely have noticed that, whether it's down to stress, dehydration, weird sleep patterns. Third, you've noticed more worry lines and wrinkles on your forehead. Stress can cause our foreheads to furrow and especially if you are staring at a computer screen all day long, squinting, these wrinkles will develop much more quickly. Fourth, blocked pores. And then fifth, I think the most telling, a dull complexion, paler skin. Now we know life is undoubtedly more sedentary than it used to be. From bed to office, back to bed, we lack vitamin D and C. 
And so maybe you've seen a sort of a dull complexion. I know I have in my face a little bit. And it's no wonder that at the very beginning of lockdown, our one allotted daily walk was an absolute lifeline for many of us. Walking, being in the sunshine, moving our bodies, kept what little edge of motivation we still had, and it kept us from collapsing in on ourselves, going out and walking. Now, I'm sure as I, as you're sitting on the couch and you're hearing me talk, I'm sure there are some of you who are absolutely thriving in lockdown. Maybe you're going for miles of walks, traveling, day trips around the UK. But on the whole, I'm sure many of us can relate to the bags under our eyes, the furrowed brows as we squint all day at our computer screens, the dull complexion. And over the past few weeks, having talked with you and hearing how people are doing, it's not only their faces, our faces that feel a bit dull and baggy, but our souls feel a little bit wrinkly too, perhaps. Subtle feelings of apathy and numbness have come in the same day on repeat, and for many of us, our life of faith has felt a bit barren. We're all going to be at different places this morning, and it even takes time to actually pick through what's going on underneath the surface for each one of us. But if me, if you, like me, had grand plans at the beginning of lockdown to sort of grow spiritually, maybe had like me a stack of books you're going to burn through, the thought of all the daily devotions and all the extra time to pray, by all accounts, like Bethany King wrote, our souls should be glowing. Yet for many of us, there's a dullness. Well, this morning, we're going to be reading through a very small letter, a postcard-sized letter, actually, from the Apostle John, written to a church leader named Gaius. And his advice to Gaius sounds almost identical to what we were told from the government at the beginning of lockdown. You need to get out, and you need to walk. You need to get out, and you need to walk. Now, what John means by going out for a walk might be a little bit different, Although in the very first couple of verses, John actually wishes Gaius good health. So no doubt he would have thought that a walk outside was good as well. But let's take a look at that together. Let's read verses 1 to 4 again. Starting in verse 1, we read, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So here we see the Apostle John, who refers to himself as the elder, writing to a beloved friend named Gaius. And he's wishing him well and thanking him and rejoicing over his friend because he has heard that Gaius is walking in the truth. In verse 4, we see John's pastoral heart. In verse 4, it says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. The Apostle John has assumed a sort of a fatherly role to these churches in the region of Ephesus, where Gaius is, and his greatest desire is that they would be walking in the truth. Now, at first glance, you might wonder, what is, that, what is John on about here? I mean, walking in the truth, no one really talks like that. How do those grammatically even work together? What does it mean to walk in the truth? Now, 
to understand that you might have to cast your minds back and I'd be impressed if you could turn them back a year. Actually, last summer, we were looking at the book of 1 John. But to jog our memories in 1 John, John is focusing on this reality of truth that God has sent his son Jesus. He has appeared in Jesus so real that you could touch him, that you could speak to him, that you could see him. And by sending his son Jesus to rescue us and lead us into the truth, we have been included into the fellowship of God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We've been welcomed into that fellowship. And because we have all been welcomed into that fellowship, we have fellowship with one another that we ought to love one another. That is really 1 John in a nutshell. Therefore, when John's talking about walking in this truth, to walk in the truth is to live our lives knowing that all of life has been radically altered because Jesus has come. Truth is not just some lofty statement up in the stars that we like to argue about, but rather truth is this accessible reality that we are called to walk in. It is meant to get deep down in our bones. Let me just boil it down to the very, very much as I can. To walk in the truth is to give yourself over to love because of what Jesus has done. To walk in the truth is to give yourself over to love because what Jesus has done. And I think that part of the reason why our souls might feel a bit wrinkly and baggy is because lockdown has taken away for many of us the normal avenues and arenas in which we work out our faith, we walk in the truth, and we love one another. We love these live streams so much and being together like this, but we know it's not the same as being together in person. You see, the thing is we can consume behind screens as much content as we want, fill our minds with as much truth as we can get our hands on, but it is not the same as walking in that truth in fellowship. Eugene Peterson has put it very provocatively like this. He says this, the most important question we ask of the text that we ask of the Bible is not what does this text mean, but what can I obey? A simple act of obedience will open up our lives to the truth far more than any number of Bible studies or dictionaries or concordances. Now, please don't mishear him there. We're not saying that we don't want to continue to dig into God's word, but rather what opens up the truth in our lives is walking in that truth. This is what John is after in this small postcard. No doubt he's after robust theology, but this small little postcard is about the nitty-gritty details of walking in the truth. It is, in a sense, a letter for the kinesthetic learners among us. You know, the auditory learners, visual learners, and those who learn by doing. And that is going to be all of us this morning. So what we're going to do is we're going to split this short postcard into three sections. First, we're going to look at someone who is walking in the truth. Second, the one who is not walking in the truth. And thirdly, we're going to try and imitate the one who does. So those are the short three sections. But before we jump into the first section, just a little bit of background, because there's a lot going on in this postcard that you kind of need to know some of the background details. This letter was written towards the end of the first century. And the Apostle John is writing it alongside 2 John, which we're going to look at next week. And he's writing it to a group of house churches in the region of Ephesus. 
Now, in the first century, the church faced two major problems. The first was an external problem. That was false teachers were spreading alternative facts about Jesus and coming into the church. And the second problem was an internal problem of the unity of the church fellowship. Now, in many ways, 2 John, which we'll look at next week, is really about that external problem that the church faced. And today in 3 John, we're thinking about that internal problem that the church faces, the fellowship of unity. Now, as we think about how we would fix and combat those problems, it might not be the way John did. And we think, okay, you have a theology problem. Well, let's just send some systematic theology books. Let's send them some YouTube videos, and maybe we can give them a call. They didn't have any access to that for the first generation of the church whatsoever. Or we think about the problems of unity. Oh, well, just get in the car, drive, get on a plane, go, maybe be a mediator and sort things out. Travel did not work like that in the first century. And so John's sort of way of combating these problems was to bring young men around him, train them up in theology, in pastoral uh, duties, and then to send them out to these churches as sort of his ambassadors. So that could be many different people working at the same time. And this is the situation we find ourselves in. John is writing to a, uh, a church leader about receiving these missionaries and teachers that he has sent out. And today we're going to see two church leaders who react differently about sending out these missionaries and teachers. So with that in mind, we're going to look first at the leader who is walking in the truth, and his name is Gaius. So first, let's read verses 5 to 8 and see what Gaius is like. Starting in verse 5. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So in these verses, we see John praising Gaius for welcoming travelers and asking him to do so more and more, to support them financially and to see that their needs are met as they leave. So we see right here, walking in the truth, giving yourself over to love means showing real hospitality. Walking in the truth means showing real hospitality. Now, hospitality, that's an idea that sounds foreign to us in many ways now, isn't it? It has been one of, if not the most hardest hit job sector in, in the country since lockdown. Hospitality, serving others, housing and providing, caring and feeding. It doesn't mix well with social distancing, does it? Now, when you think of hospitality, you might immediately think of bed and breakfast in the countryside or cooking a meal for a group of close friends. But John is praising guys here because it's not as luxurious and laid back as we have in mind when we think of hospitality. We see the kind of hospitality that is shown is not comfortable and controlled. It is risky and uncomfortable. This kind of hospitality is not easy and cheap. It is costly and sacrificial. Take a look at verse 5 again. He says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. Notice that John is referring to God's efforts to the brothers, but the, the very next phrase he uses is strangers. Brothers who are strangers. Well, John knows them as brothers, but Gaius knows them as strangers. 
and these strangers are going to show up on Gaius' doorstep. He's never seen these men before in his life. So we just need to let that sink in for a moment, what kind of hospitality John is asking guys to show. Now I know that before anyone comes into my house, I will probably know a little bit about them. It only takes a second to search people up on Facebook, see what their interests are, any mutual friends you might have. Before people come over, typically invitations are given days or maybe even weeks in advance. We know it's going to be on the menu. If anyone's going to have any allergies, it's very controlled. There's a very significant level of control we have when we invite people into our homes, which isn't necessarily wrong, but notes for Gaius, there wasn't a telephone. So John could kind of ring up and say, hey, there's three, five, seven men who's going to show up on your doorstep sometime in the next couple of weeks, and you're going to have to provide for them. Rather, they would have just shown up with a postcard in their hand saying, we have a mutual friend that said that we can stay here and we need food and we need money. Can you help us? That's the situation. Can you imagine that today, this afternoon, a group of strangers showing up on your doorstep, claiming to be gospel workers, and your mutual friend, they said that your mutual friend said that you would care and take, take care of them and provide for them. This is a situation guys finds himself in. As we will see, there are other church leaders who are refusing to house these workers. What would you do? <laughs> Can you see how uncomfortable and risky that would be? to take the risk of trusting his friend John and inviting these strangers into your home. Real hospitality isn't immediately comfortable. But secondly, we see hospitality is costly. Take a look at verses 6 and 7. It says, You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. John is imploring guys here to be generous with these men, to send them off in a manner worthy of the gospel, because they have nothing. In verse 7, we see that they're not going to be asking payment from anyone who they're ministering to. That's the very nature of gospel ministry. It, they do not charge. And that means they're completely dependent upon Gaius' generosity. We don't know how much money Gaius had in his bank account, how much he had extra to spare. And so we see that feeding and donating to a group of workers suddenly thrust on your door is costly. It's going to cost guys time, money, energy, potentially even social standing in his community and in the house church. There's a writer named Rosaria Butterfield who has written extensively on this topic of hospitality in her book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And she writes about how often our sort of desire for material possessions and achievements gets in the way of one of the most central features of the Christian life, which is showing hospitality. I was really convicted as I read these words. Hear this. She says, one kind of household is absolutely incompetent at the practice of hospitality, utterly and completely incapable. It is as useless as grasping at the wind. The household that loves things too much and loves people too little cannot honor God through the practice of radical, ordinary hospitality. The household that has too much and thinks too highly of material possessions has become seduced by the idol of acquisition and achievement. If you love acquisition and achievement, you will never practice hospitality. You might have like-minded people who come and bow before your idols, but you will not practice hospitality. 
the hospitality that the gospel calls us into is often uncomfortable and costly. It means counting the cost potentially of higher food shops, sacrificing Netflix evenings, free nights. But John is trusting here that Gaius will put his money where his mouth is. Showing hospitality will cost us time, cost us resources, will make us uncomfortable. It will take emotional energy. And here Gaius shows his ability to walk in the truth. And John says, keep going, Gaius, and follow the logic of the gospel. We've been included into the fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, which means we are in fellowship with those who we even might consider strangers, because they actually are our brothers and sisters. This hospitality is not just a loaf of bread or a simple kind act of having friends over, though, because in verse 8, John shows Gaius that, this is, that what he is doing is, in, is involved in being a vital link in God's redemptive action in the world. Take a look at verse 8. It says, therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. There's a fulfilling reward when you do this, Gaius. When you show hospitality, BRBC, there's something fulfilling here. You are included in the work of spreading the truth for the sake of the name of Jesus. This is the idea of being partners together in the work of the gospel. That when we open up our homes, whether it be for visiting missionaries or for our church family or for secular neighbors, we are actively going against the grain of selfish, closed-off ways of living in order to create space for the gospel to thrive. Showing hospi gospel hospitality is worth it. You see, it's often in the setting of a welcomed living room or at a vulnerable dining room table that the gospel is most powerful at work. Because it's in those moments that truth is not a concept up in the stars. It is real and fleshed fellowship. By allowing someone into your home, you are taking the role of a host and a servant. You are sacrificing and paying out for others. You have let down your walls and you've invited others into places of vulnerability. It's no wonder that in these circumstances, the gospel often grows and thrives. Now I can hear you saying, Peter, yes, I want that, but we're in a pandemic here. What does that mean? Hospitality is not easy. And man, can I sympathize with you in this moment. You know, we have had to be more creative as individuals and as a church. And it is so good to see the way that we have extended our arms. Even with the recent relaxation of the rules, however, some of us still can't interact in the ways we want to interact. So until we are through this, showing gospel hospitality will be unique to each and every one of us. Phone calls and Zoom meetings, community groups and garden parties. The truth is you do not necessarily need to have a living room to show hospitality. Gospel hospitality is opening up your life to others so that they might flourish, serving so they might grow. Some of us might need to rethink our spending habits. Others of us might want to think about being more intentional with others. Others of us might need to put down the remote and pick up the phone. Not because we feel guilty, but because we see the logic of the gospel. And much to our surprise, when we walk in the truth, when we flex the muscles of faith, 
it will make our souls glow. For we are all fellow workers in the truth. So may we take note from Gaius' example to us and create an air of approachability around ourselves and open up our lives to others because it's worth it. So we see in Gaius an example of someone who's walking in the truth. But second, we see there's another church leader who is not walking in the truth. Let's read verses 9 to 10 as we're introduced to Diotrephes. Starting in verse 9, says, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers, and also stops those who want to put them who and puts them out of the church. So we see where Gaius is vulnerable and generous to these workers, Diotrephes is controlling and closed off. This is not a good report to receive as a church leader. In verse 9, we read that he puts himself first. He is prideful and he wants attention. In verse 10, he's spreading rumors and gossip, speaking nonsense about other Christians. Third, he's refusing to show hospitality and welcome the brothers. And fourth, he's controlling. He's actually hindering others from showing hospitality. He's creating a culture of fear. Not in the church. I can hear you say, no way is this in the church. But as you look at those traits, I'm sure many, if not all of us, can tell stories of how quickly gossip, pride, control, and power grow up like weeds within the church. The church is much better at calling out blatant sins that go against the grain, but these sins are sins that masquerade as goodness. I'll give you an example. Oh, I'm not gossiping. I just want to make sure others are aware of what's going on with so-and-so and how we can help them. Oh, I'm not being controlling. I'm just trying to be protective. Oh, I'm not trying to hold these people back. I'm just trying to create a specific church culture here. Oh, I'm not prideful. I just happen to be very gifted. Oftentimes, our sinful nature can bud within the church environment in ways that are suited for church life and not immediately condemned. The author, the author Jerry Bridges calls these respectable sins. We are guilty of all sorts of these kinds of sins. I am guilty. When we complain to one another about how so-and-so is always late or why that leader made that decision. When we're closed off and clicky in church culture within our own group. When we subtly brag about how much work we've put on, into a ministry. When we're obsessed with getting insider information about each other's lives. When we are threatened by each other's good news. When we want to be at the helm. Like Diotrephes, we know what it is like to know the truth, but to not walk in the truth. It leads to corrosion of our own lives and those around us. The opposite of what we see happening in Gaius's life. And the thing is, Diotrephes was not a false teacher. That's not why John is upset. If he was, John would have called him out. But Diotrephes needs to be confronted about the subtle but serious relational sin that he was perpetuating. That's why John in verse 10 says, when I come, I'm going to bring this up. I'm going to confront Diotrephes, he says in verse 10. However, sadly, 
for many of us, this fatherly figure that we see in John never showed up in our experience. No one came and confronted the corrosive church leader or church member. Many of us will have experiences of not only being like Diotrephes, but being hurt and wounded by the church. Many of us will have family members and friends who have left the church because of this sort of unhospitable, prideful, and controlling behavior that went on without being confronted. We bear the wounds and the scars. These respectable sins wreak havoc in the fellowship of the church, and they hinder and stain our witness to the truth. It feels inevitable almost, doesn't it? But what should we do? Do we jump ship? Church life, living in real community, up close and personal with people, calling out and confronting sin is not easy. If you've not been around church for long, or maybe you've been watching these live streams and you've thought to yourself, and you've been tempted to think, oh, you know, that seems like a really good group of people. It seems like they've got it together. Let me tell you, we will do our very best to love you with the love of Christ, but I will guarantee you that we will let you down. Living close to one another, being vulnerable, willing to confront each other's sins of pride and control, gossip and power, envy and selfishness is not easy. We seek to walk in the truth, to have this beautiful vision of hospitality like Gaius, but often we are grouped in with Diotrephes, and we've been wounded by Diotrephes we've encountered. The truth is, Diotrephes will always come. The community may feel like it has failed you time after time. So where do we go? Well, we go to the one place and the one person who will not fail us. There's one place you can find refuge that will never fail. So thirdly, let's look at verse 11, where we, where we are told, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Would you read verse 11 with me? It says, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God, but whoever does evil has not seen God. Once again, John calls guys his beloved friend, and he implores him, do not imitate that which is evil, but that which is good. John is agreeing here that evil exists, and evil creeps into the church family. John is a realist here. His beloved church plants are infected with prideful ways of living. However, what he calls guys to is discernment. Imitate what is good and reject what is evil. Now, by the very nature of imitation, it requires an incredible amount of attention and observation. And I'm sure many of the parents have had to imitate Joe Wicks on the telly in the mornings. That requires a lot of observation. What is he doing now? What do I have to do? Do as I do. Imitation requires observation and attention. Now, we can easily be deceived into deciding for ourselves, okay, he's telling me to do what's good, so let me figure out and decide what is good. Even in the secular world, we see, oh, just be good and be nice to people. Well, what is good? Well, in verse 7, we see that whoever does good is from God, and whoever does evil has not seen God. We are to imitate that which is good. And the only way we are able to do that is by seeing who God is and what he does. 
And here I think we find the power to walk in the truth. We need someone to show us, to do it for us. God himself, who is the truth, came and he walked amongst us in the person of Jesus. He has shown us what true hospitality and love actually is. What goodness actually is. You see, you and I, we naturally operate in evil and fallen ways like diatrophies. And yet we are shown immeasurable love and hospitality by God himself. And John knows this. You see, the Apostle John has also written the Gospel of John. And in chapter 13 of John's Gospel, he talked about his experience of sitting around a dining room table. In chapter 13 of John, when Jesus was with his disciples, and Jesus got down on his hands and his knees, he wrapped a towel around his waist, and he took the lowliest role of a servant and started washing their feet. And Peter, the disciple, jerked his feet away when Jesus went to do that and said, Lord, you cannot serve me. Don't wash my feet. But Jesus responded, Peter, if I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. So Peter responded, well then, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands, my head, my whole body. That evening, Jesus would be betrayed and the truth himself would walk the road to Calvary where there would be the real deep cleaning and self-sacrifice. That is where it would happen for Peter and for you and for me. And we would be served and washed completely clean. When we set our gazes on Jesus, when we meditate on the truth of his love, it will compel us more than any strength that's accessible in us. This is the heart of the gospel. Unlike Diotrephes, Unlike our natural tendencies, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are not clicky. In fact, their greatest desire is to welcome us into the circle of their love and their fellowship. Gaius was called to welcome trusted strangers into his home. But God seeks us out and gathers us in, not when we are trusted strangers, but as Paul says, when we were his enemies. Gaius was called to provide others at a significant cost to his household. But God provides for us at an infinite cost of his own son so that Jesus can welcome us at his table without reservation, without hesitation, but widen his arms of grace to us. And this is the heart of the matter, the heart of God towards people like you and me, strangers, outcasts, and enemies. You and I are called to walk in the truth today like Gaius, and our souls will glow not because it's easy to show hospitality and move towards other people. It will cost us time, energy, resources. It will be uncomfortable, and we might get hurt. But when we encounter those pains and scars from each other, the corrosive histories, we look to Jesus, the author, the trailblazer of our faith, and we do trust that perfect love casts out all fear. And you and I today are fellow workers in the truth. We are included in the chain of God's redemptive action in the world for the sake of the name of Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, trust that his goodness, his goodness will never tarnish. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is the ultimate host that sets the table for us. We just get to hand out the invitations.
So may you be encouraged this morning. And as we go, may we hear these words from the Apostle Paul that encourage us. He says in the end of Galatians, And let us not grow weary of doing good. And in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who have the household of faith. Brothers and sisters, go in the peace of Jesus this morning. Go in peace, saints.